Welcome to another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Halstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing very well, Jody. I'm doing very well, and by that intro, I trust you are the same. Yes. I actually just saw a Trans-Siberian Orchestra last night, so I was attempting to be a little bit more rock and roll on that, and it kind of hurt because I wasn't warmed up. <laughs> well, now you've learned a lesson, right? <laughs> no, but it was a good show, you told me, so that's awesome. Hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. If you're listening to this, no better way than to cure your meat hangover and food hangover from Thanksgiving. So hope you guys had a good one. What are we talking about today? We have a listener request from Xavier Garrett. Xavier has three questions primarily here, and we're going to try to answer all three. The first one that he asks is a common one. Mm. It's one that's kind of tricky to answer, but the question is, when is a mix done? Don't ask me. Because <laughs> well, I spend you're, too I, much time with that. You do. I mean, we could get funny with this. The real answer, I mean, there's multiple tiers. It's when the deadline arrives. Yeah. If there is a deadline. You told a story before when you and Robert Navarro had to get a track out for Six a.m. the next morning right. after starting at like midnight. Yeah, that was a long one. It's one of those where, okay, well, it has to be done by X time. Get it out. If that's the case, that's your answer, right? Now, yep. that's an easy answer. Also, I, I think it could be when the client signs off on it, when they're happy with it. Yes. If there is no deadline and you're doing it for a client, that is the fork in the road for the mix. Yep. They sign off it's, on it, you're done. Anything further past that, they pay more. <laughs> yes. Usually, yeah. Because you've had all these conversations before right, where you said, I'll do X amount of revisions or whatever you have come to an agreement with. Yes. But when they sign off on it, that, that's obviously when the mix is done. Those are easy to answer. The third one here I'm looking at, what if there is no client? What if there is no deadline? deadline Self-imposed yeah. or by external force, right? I would ask myself, like, well, does this sound as good as I can make it to the best of my ability? It's a valid question. It sounds kind of vague as well, I think, because what what is that? That's a moving target, right? But mm -hmm. I think the first question is like, are you happy with the mix? Yes. And not just in your room, but kind of going into different environment, do the old car test, right? Headphone test, car test, AirPods test, that kind of thing. Yes. Right. And you know me, I've been ranting and raving about the Slate via SX system as well, where you can do that from your <laughs> mixing position, right? Uh -huh. You can verify. But, but just doing different references and are you generally happy with the mix? Awesome. Then I think you're done. Right? Yep. To judge that, are we happy with the mix? Is it sounding as good as it can? I think there are a couple of questions that we can ask ourselves. Do you have any of those things that they use specifically sort of like listen for when you're judging a mix? When I'm trying to make it done or when I've been given time off from it and going back to it. That's a big difference That's there. another, right. But let's go with as you're sitting down and you think I got a hold of this mix and what are some of the things that you're listening for? Does it put a smile on my face? Do I feel like, yeah, I'm done? Yeah. It gives you that emotional connection type yeah. of thing that you're going for? Yeah. yeah. If there's no deadline and this client is not already signed off on it, namely speaking, if it's something I'm working on for myself, 
that is my end result. Does it make me go, yep, I feel like this is done. Now, mind you, time can change that value. It certainly can. That's yes. why I brought up that question. Right. Let's touch back on that a little bit later on here. One of the things that I tend to ask myself is that when I'm listening back to a mix, I tend to focus in on a couple of instruments at a time, or maybe just one instrument at one pass, mm -hmm. to listen for, well, is this as audible, or is this track sitting where it should be in the mix? Right, because it could be usually with things that might not be, depending on style, but the primary instrument. Let's say that you're doing a rock mix and the bass is not the first thing that you're thinking about or listening for. Listening for things that, well, can I hear all those little bass lines or fills as well as I should? Right. That could be for any other instrument as well, right? But I'm listening for those things where it's like, is that as present as it should be? Is it too present? And then you adjust accordingly. If you can say, no, that's exactly where it is, then you're in a good spot, mm -hmm. right? I agree with that. Yeah. You mentioned, obviously, the emotional impact, but also hinted out there with stepping away from a bit mm -hmm. from the mix, right? Yeah. How long do you generally step away? Do you go up and go for lunch or something, come back to it? And I know sometimes it's obviously longer, but no. how do you generally deal with that? That's too short of a time period. A lunchtime is not enough for me to step away, come back and really make a profound decision on it. But have you not had that before, though, when you just like you feel, OK, this is really, really good, and you step away, and you might have been laboring over a mix for, let's say, a few hours, mm -hmm. right? You might lose impartiality there a little bit, and then by just stepping away for a little bit, it can reveal certain things. Oh, yeah. But my stepping away is usually a week or more. Right. A few hours is not enough of a step away for me. Okay. So taking extended mm -hmm. breaks from listening to it. Yeah. Uh, now, normally to... I would not necessarily be doing this for a client or a particular deadline, unless the deadline's set long enough to do so. Sure. Obviously, this is material that I've been doing for me or somebody that is close to me that isn't on a precise deadline, so to speak. Right. But do you think there's a danger of sort of over-laboring a mix as well? Oh, yeah. Where you just kind of sure. like you, you could throw the baby out with the bathwater or saying like that? <laughs> I don't disagree with it. Sure. The difference also comes from perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And I think especially if we're new to mixing, you could argue that somebody that mixes faster and does a lot more tracks within a year and finishes them learns to be a better mixer faster than somebody who labors over one mix over an extended period of time. Right. Simply because th there's more experience going into different situations, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't disagree with it. At the same time, it's not so much a speed thing as it is, I need to be happy. So that's when you know when a mix is done, when you've hit your emotional mark or you've hit your deadline or the client has signed off on it. Right. Another way to gauge that would lead us on to the next question that Xavier had was the use of reference mixes. I think we've talked a little bit in the past episodes about using reference mixes. It can be a good way to kind of keep your ears calibrated when you're doing a mix to compare with something that this is kind of our goal that we're going for, something in the same kind of genre, 
sound, style, frequency response, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a really, really good way of knowing if we're hitting the mark or not. Yeah. Then the question that Xavier had was, what's the best use of reference mixes? Okay. How do you deal with reference mixes, Jody? Do you? I do on occasion. And what I will do is I will stick the audio file right into the session on an audio track. And when it's in a mix position, I will bring that volume down on that track so that it is hitting at the volume level that I want my mix to eventually be. I do not leave it at zero for the full volume of the mastered version. Right. That's a key phrase right there, because if you're using a released track, it is a fully mastered version, presumably. Mm -hmm. you, and it will be much louder than your mix actually should be. Right. You're in the first camp there, then, that you just have the raw audio file imported right into your session. Yes. And, and that's specifically for a mix purpose. That is not for a master purpose. Right. But then there's some things that we have to consider there then mm -hmm. is how we're routing the output of that reference track. Because if you are of the workflow that I am, I have processing on my master bus. Yeah, you'd have to avoid that processing. I don't have right. that issue. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from. Right. So you need to keep that in mind if you're using that as a reference and you're using that method. Mm -hmm. Because then obviously you're cooking the reference track. Yeah, more, which more, makes it even more different than what it really is. Right. That's just something to keep in mind. But dragging a file into your project file is a super valid way to go. And it's a way that a lot of people work when they get roughs, perhaps, from a client, that this is what we're kind of envisioning, make mm -hmm. it better. Another way to use references is dedicated software right. that allows you to do it. I've been using one from Plugin Alliance and Brainworks called Adapter. It's called Metric AB. Mm. I know I mentioned it as a Friday find at some point, but it's a really, really good solution because what you do is you can just put this on your master after your processing, right? You can import several reference mixes into the plugin, level match them to your mix, and then AB in between them. Key phrase there, level match. Yes. That's the volume. And it, right. And that is a really, really cool way of just having it in that plugin. Now, I'm sure there are other plugins that do very similar things, but there that's is. one. Ozone. That, see? Yeah. There's a lot of different ones. But, but that's one that I really like. It can be very, very revealing when you do that. When you think, oh, I got a handle on this. This sounds great. And then you go back to your reference like, oh, shit, I completely missed that. Right? <laughs> right, yeah. So having a dedicated piece of software works wonders as well, right? And the other so, thing, too, about having a piece of software like that, like Adapter or Ozone, you can stick that in the last slot on your master out and avoid Chris's problem of cooking things through your two bus. Right. So you want to pay attention to where you're placing that. Mm -hmm. But that is a really cool thing. So having that specific software solution is a really, really elegant way, I think, of going around using it. And of course, you can just use whatever service that you use to listen to music with. Right. Just to kind of go back and forth. Then you're still dealing with a little bit possibly of level matching and all this kind of stuff. Just to kind of recalibrate your ears 
going back to something like that. It's it just different ways of getting the same result, I think. Right. And you mentioned so, something just before we hit record here, something you read based on a guy you like to say a lot about <laughs> and drop name on is Chris Lord yeah, Algae, saying right. that he will spend a little bit of time prior to even getting started every morning listening to songs that he's overly familiar with. Now, a lot of times you'll hear guys say, if you're in a new environment, listen to something you're really in tune with that you know extremely well, inside and out, in multiple environments. And that's something everybody should be doing. I do it. I'm sure you do it. But I've yes. never heard of actually doing it in an environment that I work in every day. <laughs> well, that's doing what it every stuck morning. out to me. So right? that, that's a little bit different to me. I think that's a really cool thing. Now, you know, obviously somebody who is as successful and talented as, as he is, mm -hmm. that he has this supposedly, I mean, I'm assuming this is correct information. It's a, a way for him to calibrate himself every morning and just coming in. And I'm sure there's also a, a mental aspect to it where it's, okay, we're getting ready to go to work and you're hearing your favorite reference track and just kind of getting in the zone type of a thing. Right. I think that's really good. Perhaps we're feeling a little bit under the weather. We might not be hearing as well as we normally do. Sure. That thing was something that I thought, wow, that's actually a really, really cool way of doing it and getting dialed in for, for the session. Yeah, so, I don't disagree so with that. We've used our reference mixes. Our mix is done. Now, the third question that Xavier asks is, what to do before mastering? Mm -hmm. So this is something that both you and I have pretty strong feelings about. Okay. When you're getting ready to deliver a mix to get mastered, yep. assuming you're not doing it yourself, what's the first thing that you tend to do? Same thing I would do if I am mastering it myself. <laughs> Which is? I output the mix. Right. But because my mixes do not have processing on the two bus, the mix bus, or the music bus, or the vocal buses, because there are several ways that I do outputs now, I don't have to worry about it. You're a little different in that regard. Yes. I share your mindset, though, because th the big thing that I want to get across here is if you're like me and, and I like to have a little bit of processing on the the master bus, and I'm mixing into that mm -hmm. because I like what that does for me so that I'm making decisions based on what I have there already. Yeah, and, and I would too if I was mixing that way. Yeah, believe me, I am not cooking something really, really hard. I'm certainly not using any limiting or anything like that. Mm -hmm. What we want to do is, as we're delivering a mix, if it's something that's integral to the sound of your mix, mm -hmm. like... In my case, I have a little bit of processing on there. Anything extra than that should get removed. You know, you might have a limiter on there to get levels up if you're sending uh, a mix to a client or whatever. Right. But you don't want to worry about that kind of stuff as you're sending it off to get mastered. You want to get rid of any sort of unnecessary compression or EQ that really doesn't belong there because mm -hmm. that's the mastering person's job. Yes. I agree with that yeah. statement. And oftentimes, as a mixing engineer, before it goes to mastering, you have a client that's saying, 
I want to hear what it's going to be like at the volume level of a mastered track. So you throw sure. like a, if you're using waves, an L1 or an L2 or an L3 or something like that on it. If you're using UA, you might use the precision limiter. If you're using something else, you're going to use something that's going to be a limiter and drive up the volume. So it's a rough estimate of what that volume's like. You need to take that off the mix before you send it to the mastering engineer. Period. Yeah. And even if you're thinking about making, oh, I just want to bring the top out a little bit more here. I go back to what Ruben Cohen said when he was on our show. Mm-hmm. He said, remove all of that because chances are I have better gear and probably way better ears a ways of dealing with that. So sure. I will notice that, that, okay, there's, in this case, there's not enough high end. That's what they do for a living. Let right. them deal with that as opposed to, oh, Chris overcooked his mix here. Right now I have to fix what's going on in the 15K area. You know? <laughs> so, And I don't doubt yeah. that that's real easy to do for a lot of guys mixing in a bedroom or an untuned room to overcook it real easy, especially in the high end. Yeah, because it sounds exciting, right? It does. And again, before we started taping here today, you mentioned as well, it's like, if you do that too much, it just gives you ear fatigue. It does. After a while. So yeah. that that's a mix issue as well, right? Yeah, I would get rid of any of that kind of stuff if you're sending it to a mastering engineer. But that's also a, a workflow thing, right? Let's say in my case, I'm mixing into some processing there. Right. That's different than adding it on later. Because if you have to add all that kind of stuff on later at the at the master bus, you could argue that your mix, there's something wrong with your mix. Mix, exactly. <laughs> right. So the next thing is in terms of this processing and everything else that you would be doing into your final mix, you want to make sure that you give your mastering engineer the correct amount of headroom and dynamic range to work with. Mm-hmm. No yeah. ifs, ands, or buts about that. Right. I would say that the goalposts here can move a little bit because of the systems that we have now with all the floating point systems and things. The big thing is that as long as you're not clipping your output, sure, they can just turn it down digitally and, and they'd be fine. But don't worry about pressing it. And I know myself, I try to give at least... 6 dB of, of headroom. Really? Dynamic range. Yeah. That's a lot. Well, you know, let them deal with it. You know, sure. they, they will bring the levels up. It's just... Well, that's know, the whole I, point, I, generally speaking, a lot of the time for the mastering engineers to get to the appropriate level. There's no question about the, that. Obviously, right. with final EQ and compression stuff as well, and maybe possibly some fader moves to add some additional life into the dynamics of the actual mix if it's not baked into the mix in and of itself. Those are all things that you should discuss with the mastering engineer, obviously, of course. Interestingly enough, there's a lot of guys doing mixes that don't even provide 4 dB of headroom. I'm sure. And that's where most mastering engineers, if you talk to them, say they want at least 4 dB. Even 4 dB these days might be a lot for them, which is great because it allows them... The room to do their work. That's yeah. You to need to done. give them something to work with, like right. some kind of dynamic range, and, and then if they're they need to add low end to it or whatever it is that that's going to give additional output. 
which means that you have to think about your volume output to what your final master volume will be. Now, mind you, in the era of CDs and everybody pushing things to the fucking maximum, (laughs) (laughs) that was roughly around minus 10, minus 9 LUFS and DBs that people would try to push to. Some people try to push way beyond that. You're going way into the realm of distortion doing it. Today now. People are still doing it. People are still doing it. It doesn't make as much sense, especially if you have the volume setting on Spotify, Deezer, Tidal, Apple Music. All those have volume settings baked in that you can turn on and off. And if you leave it on it will reference every volume to be relatively the same. And each one of them has slightly different levels that they're going for. There's a few that go for minus 14 dB LUFS, and then there's a few that do minus 16 LUFS. Nobody does minus 10. That's a CD thing. People still master that if they're pressing CDs, which doesn't make as much sense if you're also going to vinyl, if you're going to the different streaming services. There's people that believe in the one master for all, and there's other guys that believe the appropriate master per release of platform. Yeah, yeah, whatever venue it's going to. Thus, you have to understand where your mix volume needs to be for that. If you're doing the one for all, and you're going for minus 10, minus 9, minus 8, going maybe even to minus 6, pure crazy. (laughs) Push it in the red, man. Push it all the way there. Then you're looking at a different mix level than you would be if your bottom level mix is Apple Music, which is the lowest in levels at minus 16 dB. Because at minus 16 dB, your output is at minus 20 to give that 4 dB of headroom that most guys would want as a minimum. Yeah, the final output, the way I would treat it and look at it is to not necessarily worry about it because to me that's that's the master engineer's job. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is that you want to have enough headroom to give them something to work to with. Work with. Yeah. So don't worry about tickling the peaks or anything like that. that that's yep. a little bit of a hangover from working in analog days, right? Yep. But let's say finally here when it comes to mastering, let's say that – it's not in your budget to go to a mastering engineer. Mm-hmm. And you've decided that the online mastering services are not what you're looking for. And you're trying to do, do this your yourself. own master. Yeah. Right. There's still a couple of things that both you and I recommend doing. And that's more one of workflow. Right? Yes. What is that? Bounce your mix out and start a new separate session file to master entirely away from the mix file. That gives you a much clearer defined mindset in doing your master. It's also a hell of a lot easier on the processor of your computer. Yeah, so you can that's do- a little bit less of an issue these yeah. days. Yeah, it gives a clear separation from the mindset of being in mix mixing mode compared to master mode. To master mode, where you have to sort of take a step back and, and listen to the the whole picture, right? And that yes. could be could be just one track. It could be an album, right, mm-hmm. or an EP, or or whatever. So you have to come at it from a little bit of a different mindset and different ears. I think. Yeah. Can you do it just in line? Yeah, sure. A lot of guys do, right? But I think that the Separation there is important because I think if you start doing something, mastering in the same 
session file, the temptation of there, you come across certain issues like, oh, you know what, I need to uh, bring down the bass in this area of the song or whatever. And you go back and you, you've sort of got this endless loop now of <laughs> trying to fix things that, that might be there. I think it's better to separate those and do as best as you can from the mastering. Concur. Well, there we go. It's as easy as that. Let's move on to our Friday finds. Chris, what have you got this week? I pulled the trigger on doing something that I haven't done in quite a while because I've had a smooth working system, but it's starting to date itself a little bit. Hmm. So I was actually updating my OS. My Friday find for this week is a piece of software that to me, is indispensable when you're doing this. It's a piece of software called Carbon Copy Cloner. Yep. And like the name implies, it clones the disk. And in my case, it's the it's my startup drive. So when I update, I always like to do that because if something goes to shit, I can always just go back to the clone drive and I still have my old system. Yay! And it's one of those things that it's not a sexy thing to think about or even invest in, <laughs> but when something goes wrong with your OS updates, you're going to thank yourself for having something like this that you can go back to. So the company is called Bombitch Software. Do a search for like Carbon Copy Cloner. If you're unfamiliar with them, it can be a lifesaver. So that is my Friday find this week. And what do you have, Jody? I know there's something that you're very excited about. I don't know so much excited, but it's part of the ultimate 11 to ultimate 12 upgrade from UA. They have finally released the Sound City Studio plugin. And Wee. wow, just wow. See, the I told you you were excited. <laughs> <laughs> don't try to downplay this and be cool. That's right. The idea of how you can work the room with different mics and move them in and out from different sources, even including putting in gobos if you need to. And for those that don't know, oh, that's a gobo neat. is a sound deadening source that you would put in place to control sound within a studio in a high-end situation. It is massively cool. They do have a video that shows how it works online on YouTube. It's really fascinating. Playing around with the plugin in and of itself is really amazing. It's damn cool. Sound City Studio plugin from Universal Audio is my choice this week. And for those that would really like to know, it is native only. It is not going to be, as far as I know, appearing only on the Apollo system. That means available in Spark on any computer. That's cool. Yes. That's cool. That's interesting, though, as well. But that, that's very cool. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. You'll need to be on our email list in order to be eligible for any future giveaways. And we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of this incredible podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the word process. And you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion like today's episode for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Xavier, for the suggestion and have a good one, Jody. Jody.